everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we are taking a stab at one of the most iconic horror franchises to come out in the 90s. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about Robert Rodriguez's Stab. Have you ever heard of it? No, I just, just, <laughs> I'm just joking. Today, we're doing a retrospective on the first four Scream films as a way to sort of celebrate LaRon Chapman's birthday. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. We're celebrating his birthday with a retrospective of one of his very favorite film series, just in time for the release of Scream 2022, also known as uh, Scream 5, also known as Five Cream. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Brock. <laughs> Five Cream. <laughs> so we'll be taking a look at each individual screen film before ranking our order of the first four films and then discussing whether or not we think there's still some life left in good old ghost faces games as a part two of this conversation we will be reviewing scream 2022 in a separate episode that we'll be posting next week joining me and answering the always ominous call of what's your favorite scary movie first up Ron chapman award-winning Oklahoma filmmaker, Scream superfan, and birthday superstar, LaRon Chapman. Welcome to the show. Happy birthday in that order. Thank you. Thank you. In that order. <laughs> <laughs> um, so happy to have you on the show. So happy to celebrate another year in the life of LaRon Chapman. So happy to celebrate more Scream films. Absolutely. Also joining us from Planet Thunder Productions, one of our co-founders here at the Cinematropolis, and most recently, uh, first-time director of the film Hell Hath No Fury, Zachary Burns. Welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. Hey, hey. Glad to be back. Also noteworthy, the only person at this table who has not seen all of these films up until the last two weeks, correct? Correct. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I had not seen any Scream movies, and I have now seen all of the Scream movies. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so sorry for this insufferable conversation you're about to have about all <laughs> And last, but certainly not least, I'm so excited to welcome back uh, my friend, the Brockness Monster of Graphic Designers, returning to us as first time since the F9 review, Brock Lay. Brock, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be back. Before we do get into today's review, I did just want to quickly note that if you were listening to the cinematic schematic today and you enjoyed the conversation we have, I really encourage you to support the show by subscribing to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and leaving us a rating and review on your preferred platform. And I, I most notably want to call out Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a rating and a review. Uh, leaving us those will help us get discovered by more listeners just like yourself. And very recently, as of December of 2021, you're actually able to give us feedback via the Spotify app. So please help us be one of the early trendsetters who gets lots and lots of reviews or we'll be calling you asking you what's your favorite podcast. If it wasn't obvious, uh, we are going to be getting into spoilers for each of the scream films. So that's scream one, scream two, scream three, and what follows scream three, scream four. Uh, so if you haven't seen the scream films, firstly, just go and watch them all. Bias is on the table. Go watch them all. And then come back and listen. But we're going to be spoiling these movies, and there are lots of uh, treats and surprises around every corner of these films. So you definitely want to protect yourself if you somehow, up to this point, aren't familiar with the films. With that said, let's go ahead and start with our icebreaker questions, just so listeners can get a feel uh, from each of our perspectives here. If we were going to remove these screen films from 
the pool. What would you say is your favorite scary movie? And Lauren Chapman, I'm starting with you because it's your birthday. Oh, man. Or birthday podcast. Yeah, sure. You know, I had to think about this because I think probably the scariest movie I've ever seen that stuck with me the longest is probably the original Halloween. I think a close second would probably be um, William Friedkin's The Exorcist. But I think Halloween has had the longest impact on me, especially since there were subsequent sequels even recently. And there's even one coming out later this year. So um, I would say Halloween is my favorite scary film, scary, scary movie. And what, what about it would you say is really what makes it so scary? It's just like a master class in building suspense. And it's not about gore. It's not about, you know, which I think some of the sequels were and a lot of horror films have kind of become riddled with. Um, it was just about, you know, the ominous presence of evil, you know, kind of lingering. And, you know, um, I felt like they did a great job of, um, in a way, it's kind of like Jaws, just like, you know. Um, in a small town, you know, except the, the, it happens to be a maniac behind a white mask and a butcher knife. So I found that it works in the same way that Jaws does as this, this kind of spellbinding, you know, um, lesson in how to generate tension. Absolutely. And, and I think if, uh, go back and rewatch it, listeners, it's remarkable. At least every time I rewatch it every few years, it's pretty remarkable how tight that film is. Is that the one with the, the Michael Myers guy? Uh, I don't know. My screen voice is very bad. Poor imitation. <laughs> Broccoli, what's your favorite scary movie? Scary movies for me are broken down into scary movies that allow you to be scared but also have fun. And then scary movies that literally strike you and like make you scared and keep you there without allowing you to have that like kind of that nervous laughter. Uh, my favorite scary movie of all time is probably Lost Boys. I saw it when I was around legitimately two years old. And that's kind of what started it for me. Uh, I was a you know child of the eighties. So my parents didn't really censor what I watched that much. So lost boys was one of my babysitters. My parents would set me in front of the TV and put it on. And I, I would sit there for the entirety of the movie and just be scared out of my mind, but also just love everything on screen. Just, it was just so eighties. You had the Corys, you had a shirtless dude oiled up playing the saxophone. It was just, uh, I remember that. <laughs> yes. It was just a lot of, it was a lot of fun as a movie and the tension in the movie uh, stayed with me. Like anytime the nook is tied up and Sam's going out to get his dog, like literally you still think the dog and Sam are going to get caught by the vampires as they're coming in for that final, you know, that final battle. Uh, but actual being scared, I will say uh, recently I saw hell house LLC uh, found footage film where they create a, haunted house and they're filming it uh, with camcorders to like do like a trailer so they can market it for have people to come little to their knowledge. The house is actually haunted. It's very scary. It's very claustrophobic and they do a really good job of setting the atmosphere. And then a Turkish field called film called Baskin, which is uh, very terrifying and makes you really question whether you like the movie. And if you do like it, why you like it. So I'll leave it at that. I watched it a few years ago based on your recommendation. And that is certainly a movie that, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a movie. It's, 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 uh, it's upsetting and it's visceral. So it wins points for visceral horror off the yep. bat, whether or not I like it. I'm not, I'm still not sure to this day, but it's a yes. great record. It is. If you're going, I want to have even heard of this, up, this one movie. Yeah. No. Just watch Baskin. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk after. All right. Zachary Burns. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I have no idea. Um, that's a really complicated question because there's so many great movies out there. Um, but I will say, um, uh, maybe one of my favorite 
experiences watching a scary movie uh, was several years ago. I saw the, <laughs> there was a midnight screening when it first came out of Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell, uh, which is a really good movie. Um, and I don't know, something about the screening, everything was working just right. Like I don't normally uh, <laughs> get spooked by jump scares and stuff like that in movies, but I don't know, for some reason that night it was hitting me hard. <laughs> me and uh, I was seeing it with my brother and another college buddy. Um, and then there was only like one other person in the theater with us. Um, and all of us just like at every single jump scare in that movie, which there's a lot. Um, they're just obviously so very effectively done by Sam Raimi, one of the best to ever do it. And there was just a moment when we were. I mean, uh, Sam Raimi, the director of of such uh, horror films <laughs> as Oz the Great and Powerful. Yes, exactly. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Sam Raimi is a, is a master. He's a, he's, yeah, he's, he's a god of horror. Yes. He, he's wonderful. Um, but yeah, there was a, a moment uh, in the movie where just me and my buddies uh, got scared by another jump scare. It was a fun time. Uh, so that was one of my favorite experiences of watching a, a scary movie. You know, for a PG-13 movie, it is pretty... It's legitimately it's pretty terrifying, tense. yeah. It's pretty tense, yeah, for sure. It's It's got its moments, for sure. It's it's, yeah. it's it's really funny, but it's also, yeah, there's there's a lot of jump scares packed in there. For sure, uh, yeah. yeah. It handles its tension very well. And then the ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Love it. Love should it have so saw much. it coming, but yeah. damn, really should still have, didn't. Yeah, but it still didn't. Oof, so good. So I will have to say I'm more of a fan of the the elevated horror genre. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners, just just we'll talk about that the the, the next episode. I'm going to name off three. Laron, uh, iconic classic of mine, Halloween. I love it. Probably among the first R-rated horror I ever watched, and it was pretty terrifying. I lost sleep uh, as a probably what eight. Nine, maybe 10, maybe 10 year old, maybe. So, you know, it, yeah, it's pretty scary. Soft spot. Love it. Michael Myers is probably, you know, one of the greatest like horror icons out there. Uh, elevated horror more recently. I, so I, I didn't think this was a controversial opinion when I saw, I saw it at uh, South by Southwest a couple years back. Hereditary. I saw it at like 2 a.m. <laughs> it was like the midnight movie, but because of reasons, everything was running behind so I saw the movie roughly between the hours of 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. And I was, you know, it was a South by Southwest. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was on the weekend. And I was like, you know, super intense. I was also, it was at Alma Draft House, so I was drinking. And like, I don't know, the whole crowd was really vibing with the movie. So I was, uh, especially like the, specifically the last third of the movie, I was like, holy cow, this movie's terrifying. When you see that mom... Finally, start to crawl across the screen. Oh, it's I, terrifying! I haven't screamed out loud at a movie. It made me scream out loud because it scared the shit out of me. What was funny was actually watching people come to the realization that she was there because yes. she's 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 shouted in in you know um, shadows, you know, shrouded in shadows. And so when you finally real have the realization, you look up and you're like, oh, oh, oh! You can see everyone like periodically like come to that realization. That was just the that was the funniest thing. Because you're expecting something to happen, but you're not looking up. It's like you're she, looking she, in she the like corner. sneaks into the corner and you don't know. And then, uh, I mean, there's a lot of moments in there at the, especially at the end. But uh, the scene where she's like, 
you hear the the sawing sound. <laughs> spoiler alert! And I, I won't yeah. spoil what it is, but uh, no, you know when you find out what it is, you're like, ah, yeah. holy cow! I'm yeah. disturbed. And then, <laughs> so many so, stuff. So, yeah, uh, it was just crazy because uh, so I I was among the first people to see that movie, and we were all like, this movie's freaking terrifying. Probably because we all saw it at one a.m. and we we're drinking down my draft house. But it was also a rather intense film. And then it controversial. Uh, there was a whole thing after it released wide. This isn't a horror movie. It's not scary. And I was like, dang. Anyway, that's one of my favorites. There's a strange disconnect there. I still think it's terrifying. I watched it again recently, and yeah, I I agree. Uh, still got me. It's good, and I like it because uh, it's the elevated part, which we'll talk about in our <laughs> Screen 5 review. But uh, uh, I also want to give a shout-out to uh, 28 Days Later. I got real burned out on zombies for a long time because we got way oversaturated for a very long time. Uh, I'm starting to come back around. Really, really like Danny Boyle's original film because it's the, the zombies are terrifying they're not really zombies like some people would argue they're not zombies but the infected that eat the flesh of other humans very terrifying and uh, i like the social commentary that i've got going on there and last but certainly not least it's not great admit to a soft spot i really like the soft franchise uh the first one's a great film i would i would actually go to bat for the first one any day of the week pretty much everything beyond that though is a guilty pleasure i mean i'm like it, it turns into a soap opera real fast but i'm totally cool with it you know how you you watch uh, the screen films to find out who the killers are? That was pretty much how I watched the Saw films. You're like, okay, what's the catch? And you're trying to look mm. you're trying to look for it the whole movie. I acknowledge the first three. Beyond that, I'm a minority. <laughs> I just... hated the first movie. In the moment, Carrie Ellis started wailing and overacting whenever he had to got off his foot. I was just like, it's just too much for me. He does go pretty crazy. He goes, he goes, he goes Matthew Lillard on that scene. Right. Yes. <laughs> so I wasn't was, warned. Uh, <laughs> it took me out of it, but I, uh, love James Wan and Lee Wano for everything they've done since. Well, gentlemen, thanks for sharing a little bit about your preferences with the listeners. Uh, listeners, what's your favorite scary movie? Uh, you can tell us by sending in emails uh, to the cinematropolis at gmail.com or by hitting us up at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the cinematropolis or on Twitter at the cinematrop. Let us know what's your favorite scary movies. And uh, hey, if you chime in, we might read off some uh, answers in our next episode. With that said, gentlemen, let's get to the topics at hand. Let's jump into our Scream retrospective, starting with Scream 1, a.k.a. I'm labeling it Scream 1996. Hello. Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Well, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now, he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Do you like scary movies? What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie. According to the IMDb synopsis, Scream is described as a year after the murder of her mother, a teenage girl is terrorized by a new killer who targets the girl and her friends by using horror films as a part 
of a deadly game. And this film, listeners, was released December 20th of 1996. It was directed by master of horror Wes Craven and written by uh, another well-known writer-producer, Kevin Williamson. A couple of fun facts about the film. It was originally titled Scary Movie uh, until the Weinstein brothers retitled the film right ahead of the release to Scream. Uh, the film was budgeted, uh, I mean, even for the time, not a massive budget, but probably part for the course in terms of horror films. It was budgeted at between 14 and 15 million. And here's what's interesting about this film. The power of word of mouth. This is like the, like the, the dragon, the studio is always chasing. They're like, how do we get people to talk about movies? So it stays in the conversation for many weeks and months. Most recently, a film that did this remarkably well was the greatest showman, which uh, actually didn't open very strong its opening weekend, but came out through the holidays. And I, people were literally talking about the thing until it hit DVD and Blu-ray. I remember, uh, I remember seeing it like in March and the theater was like almost 70% full on like a Sunday. So Scream back in 1996 had a very similar effect. So it only, uh, it opened at $6.3 million, not even number one for its opening weekend. It came in second uh, behind Beavis and Butthead do America. <laughs> Naturally. Making only $6.3 million in its opening weekend, it went on to gross $103 million domestically and $173 million worldwide. For those of you who aren't as familiar with like how the box office works, typically most films, the there's a huge, huge just turnout on opening weekend. And then like 50 to 60% of that turnout disappears in the second weekend and so on and so forth. So it's diminishing returns very quickly. This film really went beyond that. I also think it's interesting that it came out in December right before Christmas and managed to stick a, a be a powerhouse uh, throughout the year. Now that said, let's just talk about the film though. Scream 1996. We've, we've all rewatched the films or in Zach's case, watched the films ahead of this podcast recording. What holds up about it? Does it still hold up? What holds up? Well, what holds up less gracefully? Brock, I'll start with you. The what still holds up well is the thing that set it apart from everything before it, which is the opening, what, 12 to 15 minutes of thinking <clears throat> this entire time that Drew Barrymore is the star of the movie uh, marketed on the poster. She had first billing on the poster. She was the star of the movie. And in the first 12 minutes, she gets stabbed to death. And then you're left wondering, where do we go from here? I feel like it still holds up and it still has that shock value that people were not expecting, you know, at the time. Horror movies were kind of on the downswing. There wasn't anything new to the game, and everybody was kind of bored with them. And that opening 12 minutes just reignited everything that people loved about scary movies. Yeah, no, that's a great note. She was featured front and center of the poster. Yeah. I, I mean, this was like Ned Stark on Game of Thrones. Spoilers for Game of Thrones. This was Ned Stark and Game of Thrones. Ned Stark and Game of Thrones, but done like, what's that, 15 years before then? You know, that's it's just remarkable. Uh, I think uh, it's, it's super awesome opening sequence. And you hit on one of the things that's really iconic about the series is they always start with the cold, like that, that cold open. There's always the kind of the core rules, you know, that, which we reiterate on in every movie. And there's always the big reveal uh, at the end. Um, so, you, but that opening is really important. That first impression is, is like the, one of the defining moments right out the gate. And it was scary. Oh yeah. Well, it was actually terrifying. scary. Yeah. Like thinking about her boyfriend, being gutted in her, in her backyard and like turning the lights on and seeing that, like, it's just crazy. Mm. Yeah. LeBron, turn to you. Um, oh, that was definitely one of them. I would say that the opening scene is terrifying. And I think that again, going back to saying that, you know, Drew Barrymore was the hot star at the time, you know, so you would have expect, she's also, they're banking on her selling the film 
you know, I found that really interesting also that it harkens back to Psycho, you know, um, and that's basically what they're paying homage to here. Um, when Janet Lee's character you think is the main character and you find out later it's actually Norman Bates. Um, so it was a clever, you know, play on that. And it's funny how going into it, you wouldn't know that, but if you were steeped in film, you know, knowledge and like that, that's, it's one of those moments where you're like, aha, I see that connection. I thought that was really clever, um, and terrifying, but also I think what really works is the, um, the general concept of scream that I like this, the unveiling, the whodunit aspect of it, I think is fun in each one, because what's terrifying about it that is different from other horror films that came prior is that anyone could be behind that mask, you know, versus like, we know Michael Myers is behind the mask. We know who Freddy Cougar is each time it's someone different. So there's that element of investment that we have in the story, you know, to try and figure out who it is this time and what their motive would be. And, you know, so that it, it keeps us engaged throughout in a way that I don't think horror films prior to had the same, you know, intrigue. Finally, I think like what one thing that sets Scream apart from other horror movies prior is the strong characterization. We never cared about certain, you think of the Jason films, you think of the other, we don't really, we're not really invested in the characters because they're normally pretty thinly drawn. They're con they're normally doing stupid things. We don't really care. They're just there to be hacked off. We're there to watch them get murdered. Here, they've actually taken the time to make sure that each of these characters has dimension, and which is why we, I think we keep coming to these films, even as some of them have diminishing results, because we care about the characters. We're invested in the people that they've established, and they're fun, and they're likable, and they're relatable, and they, they are people who have actually watched horror movies. You know, So I found that those are the things that kind of stand up with the Scream film. Yeah, and I think something related to that characterization is just sort of this whole reality they create with the world. And the reason I mention this is because uh, for the time, these films were especially gruesome and brutal and gory. I mean, I know now it seems like just any other, like actually probably pretty tame comparative to most horror films. But at the time, it was extra bloody and extra violent, but not like an, oh, fun, over-the-top way, like when people get stabbed, it's really supposed to feel it. And, and the, I think the, the goal they were trying to set it is, is these are the real, this is the real world. This isn't some, like, you know, Jason Voorhees serial killer where they're all just going to get, like, chopped up really, you know, all hunky-dory like most Jason and, and Michael Myers films. someone you know. That's the part that's scary. It's always someone you know. It's not yeah. some stranger. It's somebody who's studied you meticulously. So that's that's another thing that's scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It kind of, uh, again, I think setting it in a very personal way that most people can relate to. Everyone's got a friend group in high school, right? Like, how well do you really know these people? I don't know. Zach, uh, you're the outsider here. You have not uh, seen this film <laughs> that has been raved about for decades at this point. Yeah. Uh, what was your take on Scream? Uh, well, I got to say. Uh, freaking loved it. Um, it's super good. I'd say it really holds up. Obviously, this was my first time seeing it, but even then, like, I've known for you know twenty years or so now that Drew Barrymore dies at the very beginning of the movie. But even watching it now, knowing that it was still just like an expertly crafted scene, and still I was still shocked by how brutal it was. Her death. It's not even that she <laughs> uh, has a. Uh, unnerving conversation on the phone with uh, Ghostface. Uh, we bring in that her boyfriend is outside on the back porch, which I didn't know about that. And he's he's not just killed; he's gutted, and his guts are sticking out of his body. And then she uh, is going to run away. Uh, and then it's not just 
that she was stabbed. She is slowly and brutally murdered uh, at the beginning. Uh, and her parents are just arriving home. Like just that element of her parents are right there. So close adds this extra like psychological brutalness that uh, I think makes it even more shocking. Uh, it makes you feel it even harder, her death. Um, and then, <laughs> and then they of course open the door and see her hanging from a tree with her gut sticking out. It's just all those extra elements of just how brutal it was, uh, physically and psychologically just kind of still was like, Oh damn, this movie's not playing around coming at it. Uh, 25 years late. Uh, it's still, uh, that scene is just, uh, awesome. Um, and then the whole movie as a whole is just so, so well put together and so well crafted. Uh, and that, you know, comes from, you know, Wes Craven who had been in the business for, uh, decades at that point and, uh, knew how to make a, a tense movie. Um, and it really definitely shows, uh, while also, you know, not being afraid to have fun with it. Another thing, like looking around, just seeing like, uh, Ron's little, uh, care package that he gave to Caleb on his birthday that was scream themed. You know, you just see all these stickers of the killer. And the one thing that has held up well, you know, you have created something that strikes a chord and, uh, goes down in history. Whenever Ghostface mask is up there with, uh, the hockey mask, it's up there with Michael Myers mask. Like it is probably still a top seller at Halloween 25 years later because of I mean, it had, it goes with simplicity. Like it's a simple mask. It's a ghost screaming and, um, still seeing it. It still is like, that is a scary mask. Like, I don't know that. I think that still holds up well. in the fact that like all these years later, like people know instantly what that is. And it still has that like nerve factor to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I would say too, uh, Zach, you mentioned Wes Craven. This is a really, awesome sort of next step because he had done nightmare on elm street one wanted to be done with it he didn't like the direction they took it in two he came back for three as uh his attempt to end the story and uh they kept making it after that and then he came back for new nightmare which you know at the time actually did put a fine pin on it but that was also a very meta movie Love um nightmare. oh new nightmare is excellent but I, it is one that I feel like might be a little less relatable to audiences because it's set in Hollywood on sets, which, again, for movie fans is good. The thing I think that sets Scream apart is I think we've all been saying it. It is high school people, you know, characterizations, people you recognize, like kind of people you can pro kind of project. Hey, these, this is so and so at my high school. They're attacked in the safety of their home in a small town where it's typically you know people think it's safe and hunky dory by someone they know and they don't know why. Pretty terrifying. Simple concept. Uh, I also think the whodunit aspect works out remarkably well. One thing that I just find hilarious about all of these movies, but this one in particular, is if you rewatch it, usually there's one, maybe two key scenes. Usually it's one key scene where they basically tell you everything. If you know what you're looking for, the, the video store scene, Randy tells you Billy Loomis is the killer. You might be working with him. I'm the obvious suspect, but is it, you really think it's me? You know what I mean? Like they, they kind of, they, he lays out the rule, like some, some of the rules and then he like describes the movie and Billy is extra creepy and like extra creepy in the scene where you're, and he's like, you're telling me that's not a, a killer. killer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, and again, Jamie Kennedy, Nev Campbell, um, uh, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, all, all star cast. I don't have much more to add than what has all been said, but, but just a few things that stick out to me. Uh, I think this film's a masterpiece and, and I'll just say it. I know those are big words, but I think this film actually holds up 25 years later, better than a lot of other 
25 year old horror films. It feels like uh, the best of nineties horror that we clearly are still taking with us. And uh, yeah, it's a horror icon. Like Brock said, let's dive into uh, maybe some of the sort of the potential topics here. We don't have to get into each and every one of these, but I do want to hit on some of the, the themes that are, you know, pretty evident in the film. Big one here, and this is actually consistent through, if not all of them, definitely the first two or three, but does the media create violence? Does the media create killers? It's kind of this conversation they're having at the time. People who have been listening to the show for a while have heard me say this probably at nauseum, but mid to late 90s, really interested time in film, a lot of interesting conversations happening uh, related to film and, and pop culture. Uh, pre 9-11 before we got uh, collectively as a zeitgeist got focused on other things. One of the things that was being talked about was the impact violent movies, music and violent video games were having on the youth. It's a big thing. And this film really pokes fun at that. Uh, and I, in fact, I think one of the killers even says, I can't remember if it was Billy or Stewie, but they says, you know, the, the killers just make the, or the movies just make killers more creative, you know? So I don't know. I, I just wanted to kind of pose that question here because I actually don't think, uh, I think the conversation is much different now. Now we're talking about how Facebook is, uh, is rotting people's brains. What, what do you guys make of this sort of kind of question that's explored throughout the film? And uh, do you think this is something that still resonates well, or do you think it's a little dated at this point? Leron? I think that it's kind of, it was kind of the reefer madness conversation at the time, you know, like where like the, um, the stigmatization of violence in the media. But I do think there's some element of truth to, um, you know, uh, being desensitized to seeing so much violence. Because um, I can say right now, I've seen some twisted stuff. But at the same time, though, I think there's that level of consciousness where I say, like, when I see something happen in real life, I'm still jarred by it. You know, it's just a matter of like, you know, like when you hear a statistic that X amount of people died in this whatever, like sometimes that doesn't resonate. But like when it hits home, you can still, you, there's still that human element where you can separate yourself from what's happening. But I think it's a relevant conversation to have. I don't, I wouldn't say that, you know, that it, it encapsulates everyone's, you know, um, you know, seeing uh, violence in the media. Um, that it, it affects everyone the same way. Now, maybe certain impressionable people, maybe somebody that's not a little unhinged. Again, I think that his statement about like it makes them more creative, it's like that's already in that person. But this gives them maybe a blueprint for how to, you know, express it in a different way. But, you know, that's my take. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I think I echo the sentiment there. I, I think I think that's really the film in terms of like the way the, the film's trying to address that sort of timely topic. Again, I would argue is an attempt to ground this movie further in reality, uh, which is, yeah, but I mean, violent people are going to be violent people. The movies just really give them ideas, you know, uh, which, uh, again, is. It's going to become more real as we progress through the series, because by the way, Scream 3 came out less than a year after Columbine, which actually impacted the way the film was edited. Zach, I mean, do you have any any thoughts on this first timer? I mean, this is a, a theme that I'm sure you're familiar with growing up in that time frame. But I mean, like, did it seem like it was uh, something that's aged particularly well about this film? Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, and I like the way you put it, Laurent, where it was kind of the reefer madness of its time, uh, where people are just kind of looking for something to to pin it on to pin to blame um for you know the bad stuff that happens in the world 
um, and putting too much, uh, too much blame on something that, uh, really doesn't, isn't, isn't the cause, um, isn't the source of the, of the problem. So like, and I think that's essentially the, the stance that the movie takes as well. Cause I think it's kind of, um, poking fun at that a little bit or not poking fun, but it's, it's pointing it out that that's kind of a ridiculous, uh, uh, mindset to have towards movies. Um, cause I think it, it, it makes clear enough that, uh, billions do are, uh, messed up people to begin with. Uh, the movies didn't make them killers. Um, that's just, uh, and that's not even what they believe about themselves. They don't think that, uh, movies made them killers. They were going to do it anyway. Um, it just gave them, uh, in their brains, weird, weird ways to carry it out. So yeah, like they said, it doesn't make them killers. It just makes them more creative. Um, and yeah, I think that's where essentially where the movie lands. Okay. Rock, anything you want to add to that before we move on to our next topic? I just kind of agree. Just, you know, people are inspired by art. Movies are art. And if you're crazy and you're inspired by a movie of about violence and you're a crazy person, like it's going to inspire you to be violent. Probably just, I think it's more so people than it is the movies. Yeah, no, absolutely. So slasher horror movie film tropes. Of course, this movie in the opening sequence alone, they talk about Michael Myers. They talk about Jason, Freddie. Uh, this movie is riffing on all the tropes. Uh, Randy has the whole sequence, you know, in the film. There are three rules, but there's actually a lot more than three. But there are three there's rules. More than one. <laughs> there <you go>. yeah. <laughs> so th- this movie is certainly very aware of, a, a I would say, a, a genre Halloween popularized it. it. wasn't the first slasher film, but, you know, 1978. So you're thinking, what, uh, slasher films is a popular sort of film-going experience. It's been around for, what's that, 15-plus years at this point? Going on 20 years. So there's a clear formula. Do you think the film effectively riffs on the slasher horror film tropes of the 70s and 80s? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at it, like, the running upstairs from the killer instead of running out the door... Uh, the saying I'll be right back just you know like like you said like Randy covers it all like in the film so playing off of that that kind of was what actually still holds up well is that in this movie horror movies have existed and so they know the formula they know the rules and where in the past uh, horror movies act like they don't exist so like they're just brand new to a killer brand new to all of the things that are going on and so it's kind of cool in this where it's just like we know how we should be able to survive this to beat this and yet they still fail at it so you just can't resist the drugs and alcohol right no (laughs) i mean yeah what i think is great about especially the first scream movie um is that it works as a parody of slasher movies while also being an excellent example and masterpiece of a slasher movie which is just such a fine line to, to hit and it's 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 so well done i think along those same lines zach the whodunit aspect is a part of that as well like the, there's so many red herrings in the movie oh, yeah uh I, and I'm, I'm genuinely curious were you were you surprised by the killers and the motive reveal um yeah i actually um like the movie throws suspicion in every direction it can and you know you know some directions i knew were fake because you know they throw it Dewey's way and I knew he lived throughout all the movies so I was like it's not Dewey but you know aside from that like you know coming at the movies from not knowing much about them except that Drew Barrymore dies in the beginning of the first one 
I actually was still kind of shocked that it was Billy, um, you know, because we have that where it fakes you out, where he gets attacked um, by Ghostface uh, towards the end. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, I guess it's not this guy that the movie really wants me to think it's this guy, but also it's probably doing that to throw me off the scent. Um, and it do- does that very well, playing with uh, your expectations of uh, who, who and what a killer would be. Um, while then also revealing that, yeah, that person you most suspected actually was the guy. Um, uh, which, yeah, so I thought that was really effectively done um, uh, in the in the reveal that it, uh, throwing you off the scent that it was Billy, but then it was Billy. Um, and then <laughs> throwing Stu in there for good measure um, just to throw you off even more. Because, uh, you know, that's also the other thing of slasher movies is it's always, you know, it's one killer. Um, so then throwing in that there's... Uh, it's not just one dude um, is just another way to uh, catch people off guard. And, and, and yeah, I think it, it handles both of those very effectively. Um, and then they're just, I love just how unhinged they are once we reveal who they are and they just go <laughs> yeah. off the rails and it's uh and that's great. And that's something that <laughs> most of the movies all do really well. Probably Matthew Lillard's best performance. I mean, I'm sorry <laughs> yeah. for you Scooby-Doo fans. But <laughs> right. Yeah, my yeah. favorite quote from that movie is still uh, Matthew Lillard's Stu saying, my mom's going to be so mad at me. <laughs> like that's what you're concerned <laughs> yeah. about. Right? It's like, it's like all these things. Okay. I fine. mean, I, I love that line for lots of reasons, partially because it's a funny thing for a guy who just killed a bunch of people to right. say, um, but also it is kind of like, it speaks to his mindset that that's, he didn't see other people as people. Mm. Um, so what he's mm. worried about when he's about to be caught, uh, is that he's going to get in trouble by his, his mom. You yeah, know? Exactly. yeah. So exactly. it's like, that's what's real to him. Well, like he totally disassociated because yeah. in his mind, he's kind of like in a movie and everyone else exactly, is just the supporting yeah. cast sort of thing. I believe that line was ad lib too, which I think is great. I think I saw that. Yeah. Is great. Which is, yeah, it's very well done on, on Lillard's part. Also, I love it that he gets killed by the TV playing the horror movie. Yeah. Right. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Exactly. A few things they throw in there. I mean, they throw the fawns in there. They cast like big name actors. So you're like, oh yeah, they cast they, all kinds of people in that movie who, who honestly don't need to be cast in this movie. They're just doing it. So you're like, they're suspicious. You're like, yeah, you wouldn't cast Henry Winkler. in that <laughs> And they even kind of like set him up. He's, He's the playing nice with the plane. I've actually met yeah. him. He's very kind. So He's no super way. Super nice. No yeah. way he would do it. It's like, <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, so I think, um, so, so I'm Zach, I'm really excited to hear that you think the, the mystery holds up because I know the first time I saw it, it was mind blowing, but I wonder, cause I, I think sort of like the, the last thing I want to hit on here is just, there have been so many sort of meta takes on horror since this film came out. This wasn't the first film to do it ever. There were others, but this was the one that popularized it in such a way, uh, that we've gotten things, uh, like you get things like uh, we get uh, Cabin in the Woods, uh, you get the Final Girls, uh, you get the Rise of Leslie Vernon, a whole like sort of subgenre of horror riffing on the, the tropes of horror. So I was curious. I'm like, okay, I know it's great, but I saw it before I got like way desensitized to like sort of the meta. But so you, so you still think this works as sort of like a a great film, even though maybe the, the genre itself has gotten a little tired. Uh, yeah, I, I think especially the first screen movie, uh, really holds up in all of those regards. Um, uh, and I'm kind of shocked that, you know, um, I'm a big movie guy. I've been watching movies all my life. Uh, and, uh, and somehow 
uh, really none of the, these big major scream spoilers that we're talking about were spoiled for me, except, you know, obviously, because everybody knows Drew Barrymore dies at the beginning of the first one. Um, but really outside of that, I didn't know anything about these movies, um, except, you know, Drew Barrymore and the phone call bit. Um, uh, so yeah, it was, it really, uh, it really held up because yeah, I, I didn't know what was coming. If that's the only thing that was ruined for you, then that's, I mean, that's still a great moment, a great scene. I'm glad it's still. Yeah, I, I think it would work regardless if I knew uh, who the killers great. were going into it. But, but yeah, I'm personally shocked that not more of the movie was spoiled for me just sometime throughout my life. Right. I have to ask Zach, though, the 10 second loop. How much did you enjoy that? The watching Jamie Kennedy on the couch only to realize oh. it was the tit second. <laughs> oh. from the, from the oh gosh. Yeah. I thought that was pretty fun. That was a, that was a clever little uh, bit to uh, give us some tension and then prolong the reveal of it. I thought, yeah, that was really nice. That was fun. Well, also the, the fact that it's Jamie can the, the actor, Jamie Kennedy yelling at J- the actress, Jamie Lee Curtis, yeah. Jamie behind you. <laughs> behind you. <laughs> it's incredible. I think that's about all we have time to cover with this film. We could talk at length so much more about scream. It's, it's such a great film. Again, masterpiece, I would say. So with that said, let's go around the table and just give it a letter grade. And, uh, We'll move on to Scream 2. So we'll actually go uh, in a circular order this time. So Brock, I'll pass it to you. What letter grade would you give Scream 1996? A plus, easy. All right. Cut and dry. I like it. Zach? Uh, yeah, I'll go with that. A plus. A plus. Laron? Man, you already know. A plus. <laughs> First one gets an A plus for sure. Yeah. This entire table is going to be accused of being fanboys because I'm also going to give it A plus because I, I think it's a, it's a five-star A plus movie. I often call this the matrix of the horror f- franchise. It was that moment that where things, everything kind of changed after this, you know, so. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, those are our kind of, I would say, because again, the, between the four of us, we could probably talk for three hours about uh, each of these films, specifically Scream 1, but we're going to go ahead and move on to Scream 2, which is a good question. Can you do it again? Better yet, better question, can you do it again in one year? Well, we're going to find out and our discussion of Scream 2. Let's get down to business. The way I see it, someone's out to make a sequel. You know, cash in on all the movie murder hoopla. So it's our job to observe the rules of the sequel. Number one, the body count is always bigger. Number two, the death scenes are always much more elaborate. Carnage candy. And number three, Never, ever, under any circumstances, assume the killer is dead. According to the IMDb synopsis, Scream 2 is described as two years after the first series of murders as Sydney acclimates to college life, someone donning the ghost face costume begins a new string of killings. And this film was released in December 12th of 1997. That's right. Less than a year after Scream 1, even though the film set two years two after years Scream later, 1. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> Absolutely insane. The film was budgeted uh, considerably larger uh, after the success of the first film at $24 million and grossed uh, $172.4 million. So Scream 2, can you do it again? Can you do a sequel? What are the sequel rules? Laurent, I'm going to start with you on this one. Scream 2, 
Does it hold up? What works well? What maybe doesn't work as well as it used to? You know, it's funny. I get a lot of shit from people who have who are Scream fans, you know, and saying this. But I actually prefer the sequel. Um, it's not that I'm saying that it is all in all a better film on a technical level. It's just I enjoy it more because there's a lot more happening here. I feel like all of the themes and stuff that were established, all the constructs that were here in the first one, that foundational, those foundational elements are deepened in the second one. And they have so many more toys to play with in the sequel. In the sequel. So I, I um, actually prefer this to the first one um, for a whole host of different reasons. But the things that hold up for me, which I think is an interesting thing to point out, is that Scream is criminally devoid of diversity. There is not a single person of color in that movie. I mean, there is probably, but no one that of, of note, you know, that's on the main cast list. And what I found that was so fascinating about this one is that there's a record number of African-American characters in this cast that are supporting. And even some of them, I think, have, you know, pretty strong, you know, a, a good amount of screen time. So I think that was an access point for me, you know, also watching it is seeing like more diversity on the cast. And then just its its play again on sequels in general. The, I think um, a lot of the tension and all in the same construct that was set up in the first one works just as well, if not better, in the sequel for me. All right, Scream Two better than Scream One, or at least preferred. 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 I can't uh, believe you're saying Scream One sucks, Laurent. <laughs> wow, such such a bold statement. <laughs> So Zachary Burns, newcomer to the series, mm-hmm. Scream 2. What did you think? Um, man, Scream 2 is a hoot. Um, and it's absolutely insane that the movie is as good as it is and came out less than a year from when the first one was released. Like, that's insane. Usually when a movie is shut out that quickly, it is hot, stinky garbage. Uh, and it is uh uh, not that much of a step down from the first one. Um, I really think it's super, super good um, and a lot of fun. It has one of my favorite scenes of this franchise, which is the car scene. Uh, that scene is so tense and so well directed and acted and put together. Um, it's, uh, it's so good. Um, and, uh, and I love, uh, <laughs> I love some of the new fun set pieces uh, that we get to have in the movie. Uh, I love bringing in the, uh, the theater with this, uh, the sets and everything that they do there. It's, uh, makes it really nice and, uh, stage theatrical. Um, and they have lots of, lots of fun with that in a couple scenes. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, I just thought it was really good. Um, like I, I wouldn't say I prefer it to the first one, uh, but I'll die on this hill. Uh, <laughs> I'll that's die fine. on mine later. No, that's fine. That's fine. I wouldn't say I prefer it to the first one, but I would like again say it's it's not too far away from the first one. I think it's uh, really super good, worthy successor. Absolutely. All right. Those are the thoughts of newcomer Zachary Burns. Brock Lay, what did you think of Scream Two? When I first saw it, when it first came out, I did not like it, and so I feel like it has gotten better uh, with repeated viewings. I do enjoy it now. Um, one of your things that holds up with the theater uh, that I, when I was watching, I just noticed is um, they make it seem like they used 
real stone (laughs) (laughs) that fell from the sky. And uh, I was like, no, that would probably be cardboard or like, not cardboard, but uh, styrofoam. And so it was funny that like uh, these big stone boulders were falling down (laughs) in a a college theater on board Metcalf and disabling her. That cracked me up. The college has a theater has a big budget. They really commit. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The cop car scene really holds up Uh, to almost top the cold scene at the beginning with the second one is really hard to do. And they almost do it like the setup with stab being so popular and them seeing this and being in the theater and no one understanding what's going on because everyone like we've talked about in the first one is desensitized um, because they just think that it's a playful nature that's going on. I just thought that was really good. But one thing watching it that you notice is less than a year after scream, they realized how popular this was in the amount of people that were popular at the time that they got to be in this yeah, damn movie right. is insane. It's insane. <laughs> and so I've noticed them, but I have to pull it up. So Marisol Nichols, who is not hugely popular, but she was then, uh, she was uh, Audrey in Vegas Vacation. There's Heather Graham, uh, Rebecca Gayhart, Portia de Rossi, Timothy Oliphant, Jerry O'Connell. There's just like these lists of people that you're like, how did you get every single one of these people to be in this movie? And I just thought that was something that really was, uh, a testament to how popular and how polarizing this film was at such an early, I guess, you know, infancy of its of its creation. I thought that was really kind of pretty cool. Yeah, super impressive cast. You know, again, the first film had some had some uh, heartthrobs and some winners, but this movie, like you're right, Brock, like everybody in this movie. <laughs> also, some great, uh, you know, great casting casting up, if you will. I mean, and this was actually, I, I would say, Leave Schreiber. As Cotton Weary, who does actually make a cameo in the first he is film, in the first one, yeah, for like he doesn't he's, say anything. He's on TV. He's, yeah, he's he is a there. goober in these damn movies. <laughs> I know, I, yeah, he is, but the fact, like, but like Lee Schreiber is like a very respected actor yes. today. I mean, and, and like the fact they were able to get him uh, before. I mean, I I, I kind of looked and didn't look he, like he had a ton going on in that time frame. So even like the people who weren't famous at the time turned out to be. Real all stars. Timothy Oliphant before he got his teeth fixed. Yeah. Oh man! <laughs> and uh, worst acting I've ever seen from him. This, this is that I think is what killed the movie for me is okay. is him at the end uh, channeling a high pitched Matthew McConaughey. Oh, Trial's see, gonna be I, sweet. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I I love the ending actually. I love with him and Laurie Metcalf like they. The killer reveal was good, but the acting by. Timothy uh, just took me out. Everybody of it. just goes really big and it gets kind of campy there at the end. Yeah. And, and I, I really enjoyed that. So actually. you know how we were just, fun. we were, you know how we were just making fun of the, how they went off the hit, the rails in the first movie. This is kind of, he's doing the same thing. Call me hypocritical, <laughs> but no, but to be fair though, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I a hundred percent hear what I'm saying. Cause it's probably the most over the top I've ever seen. Timothy Alphot go in anything. Um, he doesn't get those roles. Those kinds of roles no, too often no. where he gets to go big like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Okay, so here's the thing. I I, I am not going to be a, a a downer because I think this is a great movie. It's an incredible sequel. The fact that it's made in a year, I don't dislike anything about it. Upon a repeat viewing, maybe perhaps in the same night as the first film, it. And this is sort of the point, but when you watch them back to back, it's still equally frustrating. How similar the the plot beats are to the first film. Now. Now, the things that are great, though, are the differences. We've already said, I'm not, so I'm not going to spend too much time repeating, but the, the cold open is incredible. How do you top the cold open Super from the good. first film? They they found a crazy clever way to do it, continuing the meta themes, 
Um, they, they have the comments on, you know, Af- the role of African-Americans in uh, horror cinema. Again, I don't know how – I'm actually going to talk about that here in a minute. But, like, how, how much does it actually say about that? I don't know. But the fact they even put it in the movie is sort of kind of playing that, oh, see, we're in on the – we're in on it. You're, you're in on it. We get it. That scene's incredible. The car scene's incredible. And I do love the reveal. It's all the stuff in between that I'm like, mm, huh. yeah, the college setting's kind of fun. But I don't get it nearly as attached to the friend group as I do uh, in the first film. I really wish I could recall – my first time watching this because I feel like Timothy Oliphant is super obviously the killer. Zach, I'm going to turn to you here in a second. But like every time I rewatched it, I was like, I don't remember. Lori Metcalf, of course, was a shock. But like I, I don't remember exactly what my reaction was to him. But but every time I watch him, like this is super obvious. In fact, it reminds me I had a friend in college. I showed all of them. His name's Daniel Stoll. For any of you who've listened to my Game of Thrones podcast, uh, I showed him all the films the first time. And he called it that Timothy Oliphant was the killer in the first scene. He says, that's the killer. And I was like, well, how do you know? Because he gushed about how the, 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 the killer stabbed the guy six times. Like he was specific and he was like, he killed him. He stabbed him six times. Like he was like excited about very specific. So I don't know. That's, that doesn't deter from the movie. I find the motivations pretty compelling, especially if you're thinking about uh, the popularization of court cases in the, the late 90s. All of that really rings true. So motivations are great. I think the thing that just really keeps it from meeting on the level isn't that it's bad because what it says about sequels is accurate, but also the things that annoy me the most about sequels, it's about still, sequels is still here. That doesn't mean it's not a good movie though, because it's sort of doing the same thing. And I, I think this is a common thing that happens throughout the series where you're like, I love it. The things I love about it are the kind of the, the, the fun, new playful things where the things that drive me crazier when they're, they're having to clean towards the same tropes they're sort of riffing on. One thing I want to say that I want to add to about the opening scene, um, because I agree, I think it's as strong, if not maybe a scotch stronger. Now, the only reason I'll say that um, on, from a psychological standpoint, because what's interesting is that Jada Pinkett and her partner, you know, Omar Epps and this character, they go into this movie and there's this duality of fiction and, and, um, and fantasy that's happening right in front of them. There's levels of meta happening here because they're watching Stab which is about the previous movie and they're simultaneously there, you know, in the, you know, in not unbeknownst to them in a murder spree, in a murder scene. And what's interesting is that when she's ultimately attacked, she doesn't want to do it anyway because she already knows how this goes for people of color in most of these films. So she's like, I don't, it doesn't seem enjoyable to me. Um, When he returns and he attacks her, um, there's this level of poetic tragedy because what I keep, what I can never get out of my mind, what has haunted me to this day, is that she dies thinking that he killed her. You know what I'm saying? And that is, there's something so poetic and tragic about that because she's, she doesn't know that she's being terrorized by a kill. She thinks her boyfriend killed her and she dies with that level of disorientation and confusion up on stage. And I find that so haunting because. It's there's so many layers to that psychologically that I find just eerie and disturbing. So that's what resonates with me deeper about the second opening than the first. I think the first one's more interesting, like from a chase scene standpoint, like just as a set piece. But I think the second one resonates with me deeper because of that one element that's added to it. Um, that wasn't in any of the other films. So, but yeah. 
I had never thought about it that way. Uh, it's kind of terrifying now. Now I can't even go yeah. on dates to the movies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, I mean, and then it just adds even more to it that she dies and everyone just watches. Watches it. Because they think she's doing a bit. Yeah, because they think she's doing a bit, but she's actually dying. And there's that level. It's like, like it can't, yeah. the sensitive, they're not able to focus on what's actually happening in the moment. Like this woman's being murdered. What a perfect murder scene. Because there's so many of them. He knew, it was like, and I'm convinced that that Mickey, Tim, Timothy Oliphant, did all of the murders. And the only murder that, um this, I can't take credit for this because someone else pointed this out to me. But I think the only other person that, that um, I think Laurie Metcalf may have killed Randy. But I think that everyone else was killed by by Mickey, you know, because if you think about the setup, when I go back and play back and I'm looking at where she was and what makes sense, like I can I'm convinced that she did that with Randy because of the whole, you know, comment he makes about her son and everything. But otherwise, Mickey did all of the random killings because, remember, it was supposed to be a copycat killing, you know, like their names, the two characters that die. But then. Once Randy gets killed, then that copycat aspect of the story kind of just gets left dropped. Like, and everyone else that gets killed has no connection to the other ones from before. So it's like it's almost like it got derailed once she got involved and did that one thing. But anyway, that's just a theory. Man, so many things I've never thought about in this movie, guys. You might be changing my mind. A couple of things I want to hit on here. We've already talked a lot about the reveal of the killer, so let's just go ahead and move right into it. Do we think this works ultimately? Um, and then we can talk a little bit about motives. Um, because I should also remind you that similar to the first one, they've thrown a lot of red herrings. And I already mentioned, uh, you know, the inclusion of Cotton Weary, uh, Leif Schreiber's character, huge red herring because he's, he's got this vendetta. He's kind of putting on this. He has motive that we can, that we can be like, okay, well that would make sense. Yeah, exactly. But we're back in college. Boyfriend seems a little too nice, too understanding. Uh, there's a lot of the same vibe, who done it. Everyone's a suspect. But at the end of the day, we get Timothy Oliphant, who is obsessed with becoming famous. Another theme that's going to run pretty clear throughout the, the, the these films is, is becoming using murders to become famous. Him wanting to do it via being in a very publicly televised court case about essentially how the how the movies made him a violent killer, which is just wild. Zach, I'll actually start with you on this. I mean, w- with the reveal of the killers, was this a. Uh, what was your reaction? Were you surprised by Timothy Oliphant? Did you figure it out? Um, I was actually a little surprised of Timothy Oliphant, mostly because I kind of forgot he was in the movie. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. he <laughs> disappears for a while. He, yeah. he he disappears for a while, so I kind of forgot about him. He's got some killing him. to do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's very busy. He's got a lot of running to do. Um, uh, I wasn't surprised by Laurie Metcalf, uh, because just because she doesn't have a whole lot to do in the movie and she just kind of pops up for a scene and annoys Gail. So I was like, okay, <laughs> she's probably one of the killers. Um, posing as a reporter. You didn't, know, you didn't know her motive. You just, thought, I didn't know her motive, but, you but I was she like, probably, she's okay. a, she's pretty high on my list of, of who's probably <laughs> one of the killers. Um, and then I was delighted when it turned out to be her. Cause then she got to be go crazy. crazy and be it was crazy. Great. A great um, uh, but yeah, like, but I, I, I enjoyed the who the two killers were, and once they once the reveal happens, they got to like the first one, just kind of go unhinged for a little bit, which is uh, just always a delight. Uh, and then being in a uh, <laughs> in a theater auditorium with these awesome sets, Shakespearean sets, uh, and all the fun that they got to have with that for that final set piece was just uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Good deal. So we the newcomer here says Scream Two reveals surprising and kind of fun brock does this still work for you yeah it does i i enjoyed 
the motive on Lori Metcalf's part, uh, you know, trying to avenge her son and just, you know, you just think about that motherly bond you have with the kid, just like, even though he was legitimately a, you know, a psychopath and a serial killer, she still loved him and thought that, you know, she needed to avenge what was done to him uh, by targeting, you know, Sydney. And I, I think that's good. And I think with uh, Oliphant, I think that does ring true for the time of why he would want to be uh, a killer and want to be, be just to become famous. You know, uh, that's happened in the past. It's happened since then that just, you know, people want to be famous. And sometimes the only way they know how to do that is to do some crazy shit. Nineties is, is when you start hearing a lot about like the Jeffrey Dahmers uh, of the world. And like how all of a sudden there's these like, serial killers that everyone knows the in America knows the name of, you know, before I think the conversation turned to like, maybe we should talk about victims instead of like the murderer guy, you know, that said, Laron, I mean, this is your favorite. You still pretty satisfied with the reveals. At the end? I'm satisfied with them, I, especially the Lori Metcalf thing. I didn't suspect her at all. Um, Cause it just sounded ridiculous. Like, who's this woman? What does she know? And she just, she wouldn't do anything. She's just an annoying reporter that just keeps popping up all the time. But when it's revealed why, then I thought, Oh, that's cool. Because that's also harkens back to like Friday the 13th, where the mother was the killer instead of Jason, you know, like the original. Like I found like just that play on it's interesting. But I also think I go into it now in retrospect thinking it's interesting that um, they had different versions of this script before this came out. Um, and one of them leaked. And so they had to derail their original plan and then go with this plan instead. So I go back and I wonder now, like, it, how much of that original script is still in there where we have red herrings where things lead a certain certain way and it was going down a certain path and then they landed on this because the original killers were actually it's actually her roommate the black character um her uh, one of her best friends Hallie and then also her boyfriend Derek see I thought it was having not watched it in a while I thought it was Derek for misremembering and I was like it's it's him it has to be him and so I feel vindicated in hearing that. Yes, that was, <laughs> I was, kind of, that yeah. was the original case. I think Mrs. Loomis was a third killer. I think there was three. Oh, okay. Like three. So that was still an element that they always were going with. But there was a triage of, of mayhem happening here. And I think it's interesting that when they cut that, you know, going back to Mickey, maybe that's why it's a little more obvious that for me, at least, that he was a killer. Because um, if you think about it, he's carrying that camera around all the time. He's the film student. We meet him in like the second scene. You know, and that little well, film theory it, class. And he's always bantering with Jamie Kennedy's character, you know, which, again, doesn't make him an obvious suspect. But it's like, oh, this is the the other movie guy, you know. But something that was pointed out to me again by somebody else, I can't take credit for it, but I did notice. Um, but I, once, he, once he said this, it was interesting, is that awesome scene in the soundstage with uh, Gail, that, cha that bait and switch thing where she's running. That's just such an amazing scene, sequence as well. Um, when they... When that footage comes on and you see that someone is filming uh, Jada Pinkett and whatever, it, it should have clicked right there for everybody. He had the camera the whole time. He was documenting everything that was happening. Like, oh, M Mickey, definitely Mickey. Who else was recording all this? You know, it was kind of like those things are given to us, but it's like, you know, um, certain things like that. Again, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, it's obvious, but I, it didn't resonate to me at the time. So, but. Are you speaking of them having to change it? Just made me think of this. So when Lori Metcalf comes on, uh, Sydney Prescott's like, Mrs. Loomis? Like, what's going on? She has been around Gail and this the entire time. How did you not see her and immediately click that Mrs. Loomis is now a reporter and, you know, 
sniffing around. So maybe that was something that had to go with the. Well, you notice though, she's only in the scenes with Gail, and she's always running. From, so that's another thing they they point out. Uh, I, I think it's like in the beginning of the third act. They're like, it's got to be someone who's always at the scene, yeah, yeah. you know. And and you notice, especially on rewatch, like, oh, you notice that she gets there and leaves right before everyone else shows up. Right. Um. She's so, always she always just yeah yeah skedaddle mm-hmm. somewhere else. Yeah, um, and then she. But, does, you, but the first time you watch it, even the second time, if you're not paying attention, you probably don't even. I, I you're like, oh, they had a scene together, right? Nope, nope. First scene they had together was the the reveal. Okay, which, see, which I, it's uh, but it, but you wouldn't think so because she's around so much. You just assume. I would have hated writing this script. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> just, <and> just <laughs> trying to figure out where everyone's at yeah. at whatever given time, so that nobody can point out this giant gaping hole that doesn't make sense. You know, like so. But there was a hole there, and they said, "Let's put." actual stone pillars <laughs> in a college theater production. Well, I mean, the theater production was run by David Warner, so I mean, There's he's that. got yeah, did, you, did you not hear the speech in which we're not going to have time to talk about post-traumatic stress, which in which Sydney is clearly like, I know I, I'm, I'm having like a thing I really can't do, and he's like, that's the art. You've yeah, got to give it to the... Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you think in that scene, when, when she's doing the play and you see the character, that, is that PTSD or was that killer there? I think it's PTSD because it represents itself again in three. Yeah. Fair. I think that's it right. is too. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it is too. Unfortunately, we're about out of time on two, but the, uh, yes, we should note, we should note though, the PTSD is a common theme. Like again, trying to ground it in the real world. Like, Hey, this person, her entire friend group was murdered by her other friends who were trying to kill her and framed her as like one of the main characters messes someone up and then it happens a second time, you know? So, uh, the way the films deal with it, I think is actually quite elegant, uh, all throughout the series. And, uh, something I'm just realizing that none of us have really touched on just yet. Um, Nev Campbell in these movies is fucking great. She's fantastic. Um, she absolutely carries my favorite screen queen. Um, yeah, these movies might not work if she wasn't in them. Uh, she just does great. Uh, carrying so these movies. She's so resourceful. She knows how to slam a door on her face. She knows how to lock it. She knows she's always ready. <laughs> yeah. No matter what. She's always she, been super smart. Use another door to jam the doorknob. Right. Yeah, exactly. She, yeah. She knew that in, so from good. the first go, uh, which is very smart of her. Um, but then also like, I think uh, one thing uh, that I think is great about uh, the second movie that really plays on, you know, what we learned from the first movie is when, uh, Jerry O'Connell, her boyfriend, the second one is tied up, uh, and she's about to untie him. But then she's like, "Oh wait, mm. oh wait, what mm. if he's the killer?" Because <laughs> yeah. in last time it was my boyfriend, um, and then you it turns out right not there. to be him. <laughs> that she learns because he's dying, um, yeah. and it's just like, uh, it's just uh, there's an emotional brutality that shows up in these movies uh, that. <laughs> sucks for the characters but is it just it just intensifies uh the stakes in in those moments in those movies and that's it's because of moments like those that i think i think the first two movies handles best by bringing in that kind of emotional brutality beyond just uh killing these random people um but yeah anyways i just wanted to no, i think it's a, i think it's a good note uh because we we see the halloween Saga try to do this twice. I think it actually does it better in H two O than it does in Halloween twenty eighteen. But 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 Scream did it. But Scream did it first. You know, like mm-hmm. and it and it did it in a much more organic, relatable way. Whereas especially Halloween twenty eighteen, they go way over the top. Not that I dislike the movie, but I'm just saying like it's 
a little more on the nose, yeah. a more blunt um, approach there. Um, we are out of time on two. Uh, wait, wait, wait. But we got to give it a letter grade. Randy dies in two. We did not cover Oh, that my God. Okay, okay. <gasps> Actually, that takes a moment. Thank so, you, Brock. Sorry, Randy. You saved us. Okay. We have to give him <laughs> moments. <laughs> <We do. laughs> okay, we do, because I'm not going to lie. I, I really, not only do you feel his death in two, but you feel it in three, and you feel it in four, and you feel it pretty much. <laughs> you're like, yeah. we just need Randy to come through. Right. Um, That's the last of her friend group like yeah everybody's gone and you notice what, what's interesting something I, I caught this time around is how he's actually initially trying to distance himself from, from the situation uh he's like i'm not playing by these rules i'm staying out of it and then the second he starts to like all right i'm in the game a yeah. little bit i've heard him. so many people tell me that i will never i hate scream 2 because i will never forgive them for killing randy midway through the movie and um, they're like no i after that i was done i gave up on it and i was like that's fair, but I mean, I get it. It huge, is, it's, it is, huge it's, shock. A, it's a big loss for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. He, he, he added a certain element that, uh, I mean, I think really gives the, the franchise a certain character. A scream two letter grades, uh, I think will go the other way around the table. So LeBron, we'll start with you this time. This one's on par with me. I just go ahead and consider the first two as one package. This is just one unified masterpiece, this whole thing. So a plus for this one as well. So. All right, A plus from Laron Zachary Burns. What letter grade would you give Scream Two? Uh, I'll go with the B plus. B plus, that's generous. That's I think solid, very reasonable. All right, B plus. Brock Lay. I would have gone with an A minus, but a uh, real stone pillar fell from the sky and knocked it down <laughs> to a B plus, along with Randy Meeks killing. Side note, Laron, you. Messed up by not inviting me to your birthday because I would have shaved my beard into a Randy Meeks goatee. <laughs> he does and have a beard. Listen, Scream 6 is coming out soon. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> we can sure this out. <laughs> uh, all right. I, gosh, I feel like I'm the downer here because I want to acknowledge that I think this is a truly one of the better horror sequels ever made. And also, it's a feat that it was done in a year. I just uh, don't like it as much as I like the first one. And unfortunately, Feels very similar, so I'm gonna give it a B. But it's still, but it's still really good. All right, well, let's find out what happens when we riff on trilogies, 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 trilogies. California Women's Crisis Counseling. My name is Laura. How can I help oh, you? Laura, I do have a crisis. I've killed someone, Laura. Are you listening to me? Huh? Who is this? Just one question. Do you think it's over, Sydney? Do you? He's now taking credit for Marine Prescott's murder. But we know who killed Marine Prescott. Billy Loomis and Stu Marker. I mean, they even told Sydney how they did it. Maybe there is a third killer. Guys, this was about cotton. We are not in any danger. We are not in any danger, says Candy, page 15. the fuck is this? Somebody who killed to know where Sidney Prescott is. According to the IMDb synopsis, Scream 3 is described as while Sidney and her friends visit the Hollywood set of Stab 3, the third film based on the Woodsboro murders, another ghost face killer rises to terrorize them. Killer killers. Mm. This film was released on February 3rd of 2000. So three years after Scream 2. 
It was budgeted at $40 million and grossed $161.8 million. Uh, and I noted this earlier, but I just want to call it out because I do think it's somewhat relevant to the relationships these films have with the real world and vice versa. Uh, the first two films, which talked a whole lot about the impacts of violence in the media, then censored itself on Scream 3 because it came out less than a year after uh, the Columbine High School shooting, which took place in the spring of 1999. I would also say that Scream 3 has long been sort of branded the worst entry in the series it has a 41 percent on rotten tomatoes 40 percent drop <laughs> yeah, i know <laughs> like compared to all of them not even it's like, just it's like warm weather versus like it's frigid <laughs> <laughs> oklahoma cold front came yeah. through yeah. For it. yeah uh it is also the only film in the scream saga up until scream five that was not written by kevin williamson uh kevin williamson and you feel that you do. <laughs> For 117 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you definitely feel that it's a different type of movie. Uh, and he was very busy being a successful Hollywood person and working on a bunch of other projects and didn't have enough time to work uh, on the, the whole script for Scream 3, though apparently he provided – is it Aaron Kruger? Is that is that how you say the the, the name? Uh, the the person who did write this film, he did provide an outline, which that writer then proceeded to largely throw out. So, you know. Scream 3, what holds up, what doesn't? Is this the redheaded stepchild of the franchise? Sorry, redheaded stepchildren. I'm sorry. For yeah, you. why is it always that they're redheaded? Like, right. why is that always the thing? Right. Brunettes. Some, some brunettes suck too, you right? know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> sometimes. I like gingers. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Zach, I'm going to start with you on this one. Person who hasn't seen the movies up until this point, you've watched one and two, you gave really high letter grades too. What did you think of Scream 3? Scream 3 is a hoot. It's definitely the weakest of the franchise, but it's still a ton of fun. Um, and there's a lot of things that I do like about it. There's several things that I'm pretty mad and not a huge fan of, but the movie overall is still a blast to watch. Um, it's a movie where uh, I think definitely because of uh, when it was made directly after the Columbine shooting, which was a pretty big deal at the time. Um, they definitely leaned more comedy in the movie uh, overall, um, which again is fun, um, but there's not a lot of tension uh, in the movie and it kind of loses. Uh, whereas the first two movies, there's literal, you know, there's lots of tension. There's lots of uh, parts where you actually kind of are scared um, but not so much in this one. So it kind of loses the actual horror aspect of it, uh, and leans more comedy, which, uh, again, like if you go into it and just accepting it for the ride that it's going to take you on, it can be a lot of fun. Um, but as a horror movie in this very good horror franchise, um, it's definitely the weakest of the bunch. I'm going to throw this at the table. Uh, I actually thought it takes itself too seriously, which I, I also think it's trying to be a comedy too, though. Does that make sense? Like it, it feels really self-serious in moments that feel just flat. Like the moments that are supposed to have like an emotional mm -hmm. beat. I was like, what's going on? This doesn't feel yeah. like the first two films while also simultaneously 
largely trying to be a lot sillier than the first two films. Am I off on that? You guys can call me out because I, I, I just couldn't get over it. I was like, why does this feel like it's taking itself really seriously in this scene or this scene? You know? It's like somebody who understood half the assignment. Yeah. You know, like they got, they mm-hmm. got part of it right. Like, I think the comedy works. I do think the comedy for works. Sure. But it's still a scream movie. And what worked so well for the first two was that there was this delicate balance between humor, pathos, and genuine tension. I feel like tension is just removed entirely from this one. People die and th- and murders happen, but there's no there's no tension leading up to those murders, you know. So it all of that falls flat. But the things that work, the things that hold up for me still, uh, like Parker Posey, I think is comic genius. She is in a this. delight. In this she movie. saves every scene she's in, and I've like God. I wish you were, had more screen time because then maybe you know. The, the times that you're off screen wouldn't suffer so much, you know, like, but I think, yeah, I think it, the comedy works, but the horror element is gone. And that is kind of a crucial aspect to in- incorporate into a scream film that to make it be successful on all of the levels that make the, the previous entries work. All right. I think that's well said, Laron. Uh, Brock, what did you think of scream three? Yeah, it's not as high on my list. And I do think the comedy comes in with, you know, kind of the, self-centered actors trying to portray these really grounded characters that you've come to love and like the kind of the characterization that they think they need to take on them, that the real people that the actors are. One thing that, that I've noticed is how much smarter Ghostface has gotten in this one by setting traps. Like, but the, it's just, there's no, not no, but there's actual scenes of death without him committing the murder with the knife. Like uh, the character of the Tom Prince with the, He's the one who smells gas first. One a, a theme you notice in it is people answering the damn phone that doesn't belong to them. Tom answering the phone in a house that doesn't belong to him. Jenny McCarthy answering. It's like you don't live here. <laughs> the director's yeah, right? phone at like, his this desk. It's not your phone. Don't answer. And so, um, so I think you know a lot of things were kind of forced with it to try and make the story humorous, but also kind of to set up kills that really shouldn't have worked. Rest in peace, Cotton Weary. He had the longest intro, by the way. I think this is like a 10-minute long intro scene. And listen, I want to watch 100% Cotton just like listen. anyone else. <laughs> we all, all want to watch that. That is a brilliant title for, <laughs> yeah. for your talk show. I honestly feel that his in- brief inclusion in the third film really justifies what he's doing in the second one. Yes, sure. Because in the second one, he's... You're like, is he the killer? Because he's still very kind of aloof and very just kind of jittery and and weird. But you realize, I mean, he probably is trying to clear his name. And also he has this like underlying motive of like money. I want to become famous. I need to use this because I have nothing else. So this is what my claim to fame is. And so I kind of enjoyed the opening with him. That was probably the, sure. one of the best parts of the movie. It's funny because you mentioned that he essentially does with what Mickey was trying to do in two, which is becomes famous off of the Woodsboro murders, you know, in a, in a very different sort of way. Uh, I was again, I, I I agree by giving him the death at the beginning of three. It sort of adds another layer, uh, like you said, Brock. Um, I was also really bummed to see him go, though, because I I, I actually I just love Leif Schreiber. And I think what he, what he brings to the role is a lot of fun. Um, that said, it was a very lengthy drawn out uh opening i think probably the the weakest opening of the series the the big saving grace is that it's leave schreiber who i think is uh, just a top caliber performer but like it's really drawn out 
uh, they were trying, like the twist was, oh, they can change their voice to anyone, which sounds kind of scary, but they don't really utilize it that well throughout the film. Uh, so it kind of ends up feeling like a gimmick. This is the most Scooby-Doo. Yes. Like th- everyone yeah. argues that Scream is a like R-rated Scooby-Doo, and that's that's fair. But like <laughs> this is where it's like, but where it's actually an insult and not <laughs> not. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it feels too long. I I really did the the killer reveal. Just I know what they were trying to do, and it just doesn't land for me in any way. It didn't have the emotional resonance that I think they wanted to have. I actually disagree with their trilogy rules that they lay out because i don't feel like it applies to very many trilogies <laughs> like they they mentioned like return of the jedi i'm like yeah but see the the reveal of the the extra backstory is is in empire strikes back not return of the jedi uh that's nitpicky because i feel like the the rules they lay out for trilogies in this film are kind of flimsy to begin with it really just takes the wind out of like sort of the meta thing that we've talked about that the second one I think did exceptionally well. What I did like though, again, cast is awesome. I love that somehow they all end up out in LA. Dewey ends up being a security guard for the uh, Parker Posey, Gail Weathers actress is tons of fun. I love all the, the entire cast, including the, again, the faux movie stars. And while I don't really like the, the killer reveal, I love the haunted house with all the trap doors and stuff. That's pretty <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. um, also great supporting Lance Hendrickson is the sleazy producer. Awesome casting. Love that they uh, brought him in. There is a, a line that Lance says, Hendrickson says in the movie that hits different now than it did back in the day. Some line that's something like there's a lot of sleazy criminals yeah. uh, who were very successful in this town uh, in Hollywood. And these movies are produced by Harvey the Weinsteins. The Weinsteins. <laughs> um, yeah. That hits differently. That hits it, different now. The whole backstory. Right. The whole backstory with Sydney's mother and everything. And this kind of commenting on, you know, the way that certain producers and certain studios have taken advantage of women in films. And it's that, that resonates so much differently today, knowing who produced it for sure. But also, again, it's like these movies are a social commentary on the, the current time in which they were made. So, I mean, it's definitely still relevant, even if it's a little cringy now. One could argue that's the way of the filmmakers trying to expose the Weinsteins. You could they argue. tried to tell you in Scream 3, but you yeah. were so focused on Gail Weathers' bad bangs that <laughs> yeah. you stopped, you know. <laughs> that didn't age well either. That didn't age. To oh. be fair, those bangs are terrible. They were terrible. I'm not a person who knows things about stuff, <laughs> uh, but those bangs were terrible. <laughs> terrible. You know, the, the most uh, impactful horror sequences, this is the last thing I'll say about it, like, is the dream sequences that Sydney had of her mother, like, haunting, felt very Nightmare on Elm Street. The old school Wes Craven. The first one when she appears outside the window, yeah. that legitimately was like, oh, that's actually really creepy. Yeah, very creepy. Um, Following that theme of trauma that we'd seen in the previous film, she's still haunted by the ghost of her past. Bringing in a new aspect of horrors aside from you know yeah. the ringing like almost like a supernatural, supernatural yeah, element, element yeah, for sure aside from a physical you know presence uh i did also really like uh the moment when sydney gets to hollywood uh and then she gets into the house set that's a perfect recreation of her actual house from that the first cool. movie and she has this weird kind of deja vu moments and like the door trick uh yeah i thought that se- i did really like that sequence um in the third one for sure I agree with you about the reveal. I think it's quite a reach. Oh, it's a huge reach. Well, you wonder if Ewan Kruger was like, okay, two, we did the mom, that 
that riffs on Friday the 13th. What if we bring in a brother and riff off Halloween? Like he was just trying to, I guess, <laughs> extend that cinematic kind of like, who, what are we going to riff off now? And so it just felt very awkward it was just, and forced. For me, it felt awkward, flat, and kind of underwhelming. What I do like is that I do like the 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 deepening of Sydney's character's past. That was interesting. The fascinating things learned because her mother was an integral part of the first two. And the idea of her mother being an actress in Hollywood, that she had this whole other life before she made it to Woodsboro. It kind of speaks to the duality that Sydney always had. She's like, no, my mom was a loving, caring mom, but other people told me had she a was story. had a different story. Yeah, that exactly. was fascinating. Even if the ultimate reveal makes that, you know, kind of flattens it. I do think it does at least establish Sydney's character as more complex and more whatever. So that's the takeaway I get from it, even if the ultimate reveal was meh. Yeah, I, I mean, okay, yes. I think the word retcon, Brock, you nailed it because it's not just a re... It's such a reach that you're like, oh, we're having to rewrite. You're not just, oh, revealing something. It's like, oh, you guys made something up and it got slapped on to the original because I think what they're trying to do is, A, yes, add the backstory, but I think there's the meta commentary they're trying to have is, yeah, the reason these movies feel like they're, mo- like they're like movies is because the guy who started it all is a director. You know, he directs. You know, that's his whole thing. He's not going to be able to make it as a, a real director in Hollywood, but he can sort of like mastermind all these horror murders. I feel like it actually takes away a little bit from Billy Loomis uh, and sort of the motives that he laid out. That That's always the sign of a bad reveal whenever you feel like it, the, the new information you learn actually takes the steam out of the cool things that were already done in previous films. And Roman just... We don't get to know him or care about him enough. He just, I mean, it feels like another Mickey, except for even lazier, uh, because he's even less interesting than Mickey, like outside, you know, before the the murder reveal. He's not like a friend or anybody. He's just some producer, director working on a yeah. on a movie, you know. And this is the first one with one killer, which some for, for some people really liked that. I didn't. I wanted there to be one other aspect of it, because I think that would have amplified it. Because if that really was what they were going with, and that was his motive, then it would have been cool to have one other element in that in that moment to kind of give it some added, added flavor, you know, because it just felt very watered down once he's revealed and his motive. Um, so that would I think that would have been kind of interesting to have had one other character, whether it was one of the the makeshift actors in the film, you know, something like that. But Either way, yeah. I would have loved to have seen uh, Parker Posey get to go batshit on the reveal. <laughs> she would have killed that. <laughs> that said, I I did laugh probably the hardest of all the murders back for one last scare thing. Whenever he keeps running at them and they keep and Dewey just keeps shooting him and she's like, "You gotta shoot him in the head." We're about out of time here. Anything else you guys want to add before we give this thing a letter grade and move on to four? Uh, what did you guys think about Randy showing up via videotape? <gasps> Clever. Clever, a clever way to incorporate him into it, but it also made me reminded me of his absence. Yeah. So it was a, it was a, it was a, a feeling both like nostalgia and then bitterness at the same time. So I don't know, but it did introduce his sister, which is very important for future films. So I guess that's bonus points. Uh, I liked it again. I just thought the rules they included were not super solid. See, I I didn't like the the concept of him coming back via vhs okay. at all ah, okay. uh, i thought it was super lazy and just thinking of it in context because in the tape he says that he's recording us during the events of scream 2 
Uh, so while there's a current murderer going on in Scream 2, he's like, what if there's a third one sometime? Let me sit down and record this video in case I die Definitely for 20 like minutes. an afterthought and not something Oh, it's that... 100% an afterthought. And it's just, I don't know, it's just very lazy. And yeah, it was well, just... It's like they regretted killing. They're like, ah, oh, crap. Well, these yeah. aren't, it's not Screaming without Randy, but we kind of killed them in the second. Well, we killed yeah. him because we were stupid. So let's go ahead and like write this scene where he's <laughs> let's in just, it. Let's <laughs> it's just like, cram him in here, here somehow. But I think the weakest element for sure here is the writing. That's what that's what felt. Yeah, the, yeah. The, that's what's not sharp. What was so sharp in the first two? The clever lines, clever zingers, all those. I feel like there's there's a devoid of that in this one for sure. And then Kevin Williams didn't write it, so we have to we have to say that that has to be that did hurt the franchise in some degree. The love interest is somehow Patrick Dempsey with Sidney Prescott, even though they don't have like any chemistry whatsoever. <laughs> they have no chemistry and they don't acknowledge him in the fourth film. I know it's 11 years later, but like they made such a deal about it in three, but they're like, what if we just forgot that happened? Anyways, we've bashed the movie a lot. It's still a lot of fun. It's still a lot of fun. It's still a lot of fun. Brings us to letter grades. We've been really harsh on it just because the bar is so high. Also, I just question how it took them after three years, they weren't able to write a movie half as good as two, which they wrote in one year. But, you know, that's a different conversation. They wrote in like three months because they had to, yeah, had to shoot. That. Yeah, you're right. Actually, yeah, fair point. Yeah. <laughs> Rough that damn thing on a napkin and just went to town. All right. Letter grades. Zach, I'm starting with you this time. Uh, I would say probably a C. C? Yeah. I see. Yes. Brock Lay? I'm going to bump that up to a C plus only because I believe that Kevin Williamson met Joshua Jackson on the set of Scream 2, and that gave us uh, Dawson's Creek. So I will say C+. Because we lost him because of Scream, because of that. So I'll bump it up just because we know what happened with his absence. LaRon Chapman. Okay, so like, like Zach said, this is very much like, I treat all these like my children. And I've told you this before, I love all my children. I like spending more time with some others than others. <laughs> you know, so this is one of those kids that, you know, can give me my space every now and then. So I will say, I will give this a solid B minus. My affection for it has grown over the years. Um, Cause I was, I felt very let down when I saw it, when it came out, that was the first one I saw in theaters. Um, and then seeing it upon re replay during the pandemic, I laughed a lot more. And once now that my expectations were lowered and I knew what I was seeing, I was able to appreciate what we have, the movie that we actually get from it. So yeah, B minus, solid B minus. Ah, oh, man, again, I'm going to come down hard on this, guys. Here's the thing. I was so let down by this movie that I don't think I've seen it since I saw it the first time. I should also note that I'm pretty sure when I saw it the first time, I am like 95% sure I saw it on TV, which is not a good way to watch a movie for the first time. So I was ready going into this one. This was actually the one I was most excited to revisit because I hadn't seen it in so long because I knew I watched it in a less than less than the best way to watch the movie. I, and I was like ready to say, you know what? Maybe this is a, a matrix reloaded uh, revolutions thing where over some time we've got some distance and we can just accept it for what it is going into it. And I wanted to like it and I still kind of came out saying it had its moments, but it's a C minus. So that's where I'm landing. This is not really a, a trilogy. It's, it turns out this is the third part in a five part movie series. So with that said, let's go ahead and move on to the final film that we're talking about today. Scream four. What's your favorite scary movie? 
is my Whisboro Massacre anniversary question. What is your favorite scary movie? What's your favorite scary movie? One generation's tragedy is the next one's a joke. What is your favorite scary movie, man? I'll show you. This week marks the anniversary of the infamous Woodsboro murders. Local celebrity victim, Sydney Prescott, chose to return to her hometown. Welcome home, Sydney. Watch the preview of coming events. What do you want? Who is this? He's trying to do Ghostface. I'm standing in the closet. All right, according to the IMDb synopsis, Scream 4 is described as 10 years have passed and Sydney Prescott, who has put herself back together, thanks in part to her writing, is visited again by the ghost face killer killers. So this film was released 11 years later, April 11th of 2011. It was budgeted at $40 million and is the lowest performer of the entire franchise, grossing only $97.2 million. And it sounds like it made up the, the budget and the marketing budget, but it wouldn't wouldn't be what we call a hit, gross less than the films that had all come out, again, 11-plus uh, uh, years before that. They actually had plans, Williamson and Wes Craven and the, the Weinsteins were going to make an entire second trilogy that they put on ice uh, after the low performance of this film. And I remember seeing this film in theaters being super stoked because uh, horror really did undergo quite the evolution, uh, you know, looking at horror films of the 90s all the way through the 2010s, beginning of the 2010s. You had remakes everywhere. Uh, You had torture porn had sort of been on the rise. So the, the saws, the hostels, like all these movies that were just super violent for no reason. Uh, had taken over and the internet had become such a, had become a much more prominent part of the film going experience for horror movies. Uh, So I was really excited to check out Scream 4 and see, hey, what are they going to do with the film? So with that said, let's go ahead and go around the table to hear what everyone thought about Scream 4. Laurent, I'm going to start with you. Scream 4. Saw this in theaters. I was pleasantly surprised at the time. Because again, so much time, like you said, um, had been removed. Um, again, horror had gone undergone another evolution, and I was very curious how they were going to comment on this change. Because torture porn and all of that is kind of harder to spoof, you know, um, as than your traditional just standard slasher film. And I think they do a mostly good job with commenting on that. I think the most clever thing that they did with this was the hard, the cold open for this one. Um, it's not my favorite of the five opens, but it is definitely the most unique one of those. Um, and it did surprise me because the movie within the movie within the movie within the movie kind of was very clever and plays on the fact that there are just so many monotonous sequels and spinoffs to all these different types of movies. And that level of meta was a lot of fun. Um, it was nice to see the open, I mean, the characters returning to this space again and, this one, again, return of Kevin Williamson, you definitely feel that in the writing in terms of a lot of the the humor is is back. The sharp, the sharp, clever observations are back. So I think that worked really well. Laron Chapman, you're coming you're coming more positive than I expected. All right. This is good. Is there a but? There's a but, but we'll get to that but. <laughs> oh, okay. 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 All right. All right. Uh Brock Lay, what did you think of Scream 4? 
I like Scream 4 way more than I probably should. Um, I feel like this is a really good return um, after being gone for 10 years. Again, you can kind of tell Kevin Williamson's back. I think the the writing, the dialogue is really good. I like the new group of, you know, of kids that are in it that are kind of in there with Sydney and then kind of the original gang. One of the strongest people in it that really made the film for me is Hayden Panettiere as her character Kirby. I feel like she was somebody that uh, kind of carried the film for like with her character. I feel like she's very charismatic and I feel like she was really strong in like how she kind of portrayed herself. So I, I don't know. I think that maybe held it up more for me. And then I really enjoyed the the reveal and kind of the reasoning behind it. I feel like that was a really strong uh, ending and that we will get to that. Yeah, I have to have to uh, echo those sentiments, Brock. Uh, really liked all of those details that you mentioned there as well. One of the most violent ones. I think this oh, yeah. is the movie that has the most kills. Yes. Uh, of the original, the first four, it's definitely at the highest body count and the most gruesome death. And I mean, I know it's sort of kind of part of the thing, but like the intestines hanging out and everything, it's it's pretty rough. Zach Burns. Again, I'm just I'm always excited <laughs> to hear what you think because like we're all so close to this thing and you're just like going to watch them all in a in a week. What do you think of Scream 4? Uh I really liked Scream 4. Um especially uh coming out of of 3 which again I thought was a good hoot um and a good more fun uh comedy slanted movie. Um I thought 4 was really great in in how it it was able to kind of uh bring the horror back to it. Uh, to the franchise um, while still keeping its fun, fun bits. Uh, and I think, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the credit there is uh, getting Kevin Williamson back. Um, he's definitely of the first four movies, um, a huge piece of what makes him work beyond uh, the cast and obviously Wes Craven. It, it's kind of silly in a lot of the stuff it does with uh, webcams and so forth. But also I think a lot of that was, you know, just part of movies of the time we were still trying to figure out, even though the internet had been around for a while, it was starting to become much more of a, a huge thing in everybody's lives. And, and webcams were, were still pretty new at the time. Uh, and so I think, you know, part of what, how maybe some of those aspects have aged kind of poorly in, in the more silly direction is just, you know, that's kind of par for the course for, I think of any movies of the time that, uh, tried to incorporate the internet in it. I still really enjoyed the movie. Uh, there's a brutality, that's brought back that was missing from the third one to some of its kills, especially when um, the neighbor gets yeah. killed. Um, that death is brutal yeah. and they're just having to watch it from the next house over. Like that's a, that's insane. Um, and that's, you know, <laughs> that that's an element that I think, uh, you know, I I've said it, it's, it's, it's brutal and he, <laughs> she gets killed in a horribly, really drawn out terrible way, but also having them just at the next house over having to watch it's again, it, it's that's that kind of psychological brutality that's brought back to the, to the franchise that three definitely didn't have, uh, but was definitely there for one and two for some of the kills. Then that's, you know, I think that's a big part of what raises the stakes and makes this uh, actually feel dangerous for the characters. Um, so I was really glad to see that uh brought back um and yeah like i said i love i love the reveal at the end i love who the killers turn out to be i love their motivations um also uh, again i get we're sort of dancing into like the, the the motivations part but the way the killer mangles her own body oh yeah i love to, that to, sequence. to like set herself up as the victim holy cow that, uh, yeah. that was that's upsetting Ooh. yeah 
yeah, I really love that sequence. There's uh, there's a lot of stuff I really love about this movie. Um, and yeah, we can get more into it, but yeah, go for it. You, you just honestly just made me think of this when you were talking about them watching their best friend get murdered next door. They're watching that happen. And it's like, so is that another callback to Nightmare on Elm Street where Heather Langenkamp has mm-hmm. to listen to Johnny Depp get yeah, murdered yeah. on the phone and he lives, you know, right next yeah. door. And so I don't know. I just wonder if like that's like another little kind of Easter egg thing that they're trying to like. Okay, let's, I wouldn't doubt it. But let's go. I definitely into that. missed it, but I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I I saw Scream Four in theaters and loved it. Like I mentioned a few minutes ago, I will say this rewatch in particular for me. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I watched all four of these movies in a very close amount of time. It yes, it's riffing on uh, reboots and remakes, but it also more than I recall feels like it's going through the motions exactly like a yes. The the kills are brutal. Like all the stuff is there, but like the beats just feel like, okay, here we go again. It feels I, I and this again was probably screen four is probably the one I've seen the most other than the first one. It, I just felt like it was more go through the motions than even two. that said the motivations of the killer, I think are, Incredible. The reveal, the execution, how deeply upsetting it still feels. I mean, I know we talked about the motivations in one and two, and yeah, those those are very real and upsetting. But like living in this uh, sort of internet age where social media is such an important part of the every conversation we have, like it feels so real where you're like, wow, this is someone would totally do this to get famous, you know? So that still elevates the whole film for me, not just because it's such a shock. Oh, so it's elevated horror. Uh, not quite not yet (laughs) (laughs) oh sorry sorry (laughs) but it it, it just it really uh, hits home with me so I guess we can go ahead and start going around the table talking about the reveal uh, of the killers which in this case you know Sydney's niece wants to become the star Uh, firstly Zach I'm turning it to you Uh, I know when I saw this in the theater looking for the killer I was floored what was your reaction were you surprised uh, yeah, I actually was kind of shocked that it was, what's her name? Jill? Jill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that Jill was one of the killers. Um, uh, but once it happened and she went into why she was doing it, I was like, oh wow, this is actually great. Um, I, I love her demented motivation that uh, probably works better now, uh, yeah. now that social media is much bigger than it was back then. Uh, and being an influencer, uh, is much more of a thing now than, than it was then. Um, and so I really loved her motivation and then, uh, <laughs> good old little Rory Culkin over there. His wasn't as much of a shock just cause right. he's, you know, he's a Culkin. Yeah, exactly. His reveal that he was a killer, uh, wasn't a huge shock, but I also still loved how they revealed it. Cause they brought back, uh, cause he's tied up to the chair outside with Hayden Panettiere having to kind of relive what Drew Barrymore went through in the first one. Uh, talking on the phone, trying to answer those uh, quiz questions, which I thought that sequence and that scene was really great. Um, I really loved that. Um, and then, she definitely got that answer right, by the way. Yeah, Whatever absolutely. the question was, <laughs> that was incredible. she got it the right. incredible. She listed off every remake. Again, I would say arguably the MVP of the, one of the MVPs of the movie. For oh, sure. yeah. She she is honestly really great in the movie. Um, and yeah, she, she was one of my favorite uh of the new characters for sure. So it was a bummer to see her go. Um, maybe. Well, that's true. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah, maybe. Action. Maybe. 
yeah, who knows? I hold out hope. I love the reveal. I love that sequence where uh, Jill is uh, (laughs) punishing herself uh, in order to make it more believable that she is a victim and not one of the killers herself, um, where she's throwing her head into the wall, throwing herself into the glass table. Every time I'm watching Uh, it, I have to see it one more time. It's really great. And she's like, she's so brutal to herself in her lies. But then again, you know, I loved... And of course we, we knew it was coming that she was, uh, uh, just going to straight up kill Rory Culkin, um, with her setting up that it was only a wound. Um, but again, I still love that where, and then he, cause you know, he doesn't see it coming at all. Um, uh, and that's again, kind of throwing it back to the first movie, uh, with Stu. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, which I, I love that aspect of both, uh, in one and four, I like when the killers know that they've been fucked um, and have that moment to reflect on it. Like, Oh my God, am I dying? Um, they're just so shocked. Um, and I love them having that moment. Uh, Cause fuck them, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I really liked uh, a lot of four. I liked who the killers were. I liked their, their motivations and the reveal of them. Uh, yeah. Four is a, it's a good time. Awesome. Brock. The uh, reveal worked pretty well for you? Yeah, it did. I feel that four is the most fun of the movies. I mean, it's still scary. It's still brutal, but I feel like it's the most fun. It's the most, it's the only word that comes to mind. So it's, y'all are probably going to laugh at me, but hip. I don't know. Like, I feel like the teenagers feel like teenagers. I feel that in this one, Nev Campbell and everybody, they finally feel like the OGs. They finally feel like the elder statesmen that kind of know how this thing goes. Um, the one thing I, I like the killers and I like the reveal. I like the motive, but I, dislike the uh, stature of the two killers. You have the two daintiest people in the cast. And those are the two most brutal uh, people that are killing everybody. So it's just almost like that part's kind of like physically, like would that really work? Uh, But Emma Roberts just goes full sale on this. Like I love the motive behind it. Kind of the, almost the jealousy of her cousin getting all of the attention and all of the, you know, the books and everything and her wanting to be a part of that and, wanting to stop at nothing to do that. So that's what sparks this whole thing. And again, like you said, riffing on the first, just not letting Rory Culkin take any ounce of glory from her. Uh, And she would have been maybe one of the first to actually get away with it. If she wouldn't have talked about her and Gail having matching wounds to Dewey, maybe she gets away with going in Nev Campbell's room and offing her and getting back to hers. Who knows? But this could have been the first time someone actually got away. Slipped up somewhere. Phone. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in a roundabout way, she kind of gets what she wants a little bit because you notice as they close the film, the reporters are all talking about she her. She becomes a martyr, but <laughs> yeah. in a in a different, yeah. for a different reason. Yeah, yeah sure. exactly. Laurent, uh, the reveal, did this, how, how well did this work for you? So here's the but. <laughs> um, no, I um, I echo what everyone says. Uh, I do think this is a good time. Um, it, it It didn't, play as well for me on second viewing as it did the first time. I think I was just so excited that Kevin Williamson was back that I'd forgotten how disappointed I was with three with the first time I saw it. So, uh, but singing it again, knowing what I was expecting, it did kind of drag for me this time. Um, the pacing of it, you know, from moment to moment. Um, I think the deaths were great. I think the new characters were great, but I do feel like a lot of the tension was, there's a lot of lulls between them. When it happens and when it's present, it's it's there, you know, as it, I thought it was completely removed from three. 
it's still present in four, but I feel like it's just so spaced out in between these moments that I did find myself, you know, wanting it to kind of hurry up and get to the point. Uh, I think the reveals work for the motivations. I think that Jill does a great job. I think that Emma Roberts does a good job as Jill in that final sequence. I do think that her character everywhere else except for the closing sequence is pretty bland. And that was my issue. Is that? But see, that's the point, though. I guess so. See, she's, 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 I, I, I don't. Am I trying to justify the bad <laughs> yes. acting? Because well, you don't want you, if yeah. you, get, you don't want to get to know her too well. Because if you do, then she's sus. You know, yeah. she's either suspect or not. Yeah. I don't know. That's fair. I think. Um, I think intermittently, just throughout the whole film, I was just thinking like, I don't care about this character at all. And then when it reveals, like, oh, I wouldn't have expected her to, her to be the person because I wasn't paying any attention to her. Um, but. That I do think that she goes ham in that last sequence, like all the actors do, and the reveal, and does she does a great job there. So then I was able to buy into it. Um, I think I like the motivation more than I like her character arc, but I like I do like you know I did at least appreciate that. I do want to give a shout out to Judy Hicks. I feel like um, yeah. Marley Shelton is is great as the uh, she's a lot of fun. She's a lot yeah. of fun. The lemon squares, the lemon the, squares. even if they taste like Sa- ass, it's wear like the vest, save your chest. You know, like just I just love how corny she is. <laughs> I also love that they have that scene again. Talk about going back to the basics with the red herrings, where she's like creepily standing in the corner. She's like, "Hi, Sydney. Do you remember me from drama class?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's <laughs> like right in the shadows. Yeah. It's it's really definitely, good. yeah, just just such so fun. Um, and I, I do think that my favorite line, one of my favorite lines in the whole franchise is this one when Sydney ultimately kills Jill. Um, and she's like, you forgot one rule about the original. I mean, whatever, you know, you don't fuck with the original, you know. So I thought that was about re- reboots. You don't fuck with the original. I thought that was great. Um, and that, that got a large cheer in the theater, I remember, so... Um, that still hits. Uh, but mostly, I think this is a, a pretty good time. Yeah, I, I think the only thing I'd add there regarding the reveal is you kind of expect the movie to kind of, again, going through the motions. We know how the first film works. You meet the characters. You learn the rules. There's always a party. Uh, I like that this doesn't end at the party. They have like this entire sort of, I wouldn't say it's a full act, but there's a pretty, what, 15, 10-ish minutes of the movie that takes place after you're like, oh, wait, Wait, like we're past where the first movie ended. What's like so? You've, it's like an uncharted territory, and on top of that, it, it feels like the the killer's getting away. So you have this really exciting sequence uh, that feels like it's unlike from any of the other films. But hey, listen, guys, we live in a world where I this was true in 2011. It's more true today. It's harder than ever to get noticed on the internet to become one of these said influencers because there's just so much stuff. On the internet, there's so much content, there's so many people, so many voices. Lots of pressure. Uh, Definitely yeah. should kill somebody. Lots of pressure. <laughs> that that even if you kill someone, that's the thing. Her point is I can't just kill someone. I have to, it has to be like a yeah. crazy yeah. screwed up thing that happens that makes headlines for even a day for her to like have a chance at this thing. That's just wild. And I feel like it's it it feels very real. All right, uh, let's go ahead. We have, we uh, we this is surprising no one we went long, so let's uh, let's wrap up our conversation uh, regarding Scream Four uh, with letter grades. Brock, I'll start with you with this round. Keep it short and sweet. I'll go A minus. A minus. All right, Zach. Um, I'll do what I did for two and say a B. All right, B, very solid. Laron. Uh, this also gets a B for me. All right. I'll, I'll be a little higher on this one. I'll go B plus B plus very, very solid. 
doesn't hold up as well as I remember, but it's still all around great film with a tremendous uh, ending. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, our thoughts on screen one, two, three, and four. We have one very important thing we have to do today before we put a pin in it, and that is rank the films. And Leron, I'm going to I'm gonna have to hand it to you first. You're the, you're the birthday person <laughs> at the table. You, were, you specifically said we got to rank so them. punish me. Okay. <laughs> no. no pressure. No. But uh, what? how would you rank these films? Uh, again, we're not including Scream 5, which we'll get to in our uh, review next week. So I always do this on two wavelengths. I have a preferential ranking and then a quality ranking. So my preferential ranking is two, one, um, three, four. Um, now my quality ranking in terms of what I actually think is actually, if I'm looking at it from a technical level as a filmmaker and like what elements work the best one, two, four, three. So, all right. One, yeah. two, four, three. I like that you break it up. I, I appreciate you, uh, for saying there's my preference and there's the actual quality. That's you totally redeemed fair. yourself. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I was uninviting myself from your next birthday. <laughs> Brock Lay, how would you rank the screen films one through four? All around uh, one, four, two, and three. Last. All right. Zach? Uh, I will go one, and then I think two and four are probably about the same maybe kind of a tie with each other uh and then three cheated yep cheated mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am going to say man i'm tough i've gone back and forth on this i think i'm going to say one four two three here's the thing in terms of quality two and four are so close just the things that i really the thing i like about four makes it like it just takes it up such a level where I, i'll probably rewatch four more frequently than two, which is where I came down on. But I, I think they're all great films. Even the third one, I think I'll, I'll you know I'll end up rewatching it. But uh, yeah, I think I think it goes one, four, two, three for me as well. I mean, I think that's what's most crazy coming into this, at least for me, uh, having not seen any screen movies uh, until about a week ago. Um, is as many movies as in this franchise, uh, they're all darn good. Like, there's not uh, an outright bad movie in this entire franchise and how many other franchises can say that especially in the horror especially genre. in horror it's yeah. definitely the most consistent yeah most consistent of of the horror franchise i feel like yeah for sure yeah well and going back i mean and you might even feel this way too zach i watched all of them you know within a week to get you know in preparation for this and it's fun being in it like you feel like you're in this group because you're with them I, I was with them like every day going through all of this stuff and you really kind of get those attachments to it. And each one just deepens that connection. And even the third one, even though it's not that good, you still have like those little moments where Sydney does something or doing and you like, you just get attached to them that much more because that's just, you know, a testament to like strong characters that were established in the first one. So it's just really fun kind of having that sprawled out across 25 years, having, you know, all of these, all of these movies to kind of like delve into and kind of immerse yourself in that world. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I, I mean, just to put a pin in it, Brock, I think you hit on something really important there that we ran out of time to talk about. But uh, one of the really big highlights of three, and I would, I would say even four by extension, is the the Dewey-Gale relationship, which is a highlight throughout. But especially in three and four, it takes some more interesting turns. Every film you check back in, you feel rewarded because they're not in the same place they were where we left them before. Even though they're the same characters, they have evolved and moved on. And we'll see that again in Scream 5. 
Um, so again, I think that just speaks to the level of quality because there's never a film where you're like, ah, so-and-so would never act this way or say that or do that. The characterization remains strong. So great ending note. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for tuning in to this special retrospective of Scream 1 through 4. To hear where we fall on Scream 2022, also known as Scream 5, also known as Five Cream, as Brock put it earlier, you'll have to tune into next week's episode. And to ensure you're one of the first people to hear that, once it hits the internet airwaves, is to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast app. Uh, specifically uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts are great places to find us or right on over at thecinematropolis.com. Let's go around the table. Uh, where can listeners keep up with you and your thoughts and movie opinions uh, on the internet or any of your work? Uh, Laurent, we'll start with you. They can follow me on my name, Laurent Chapman, on um, Facebook, or they can follow me on Instagram at BlackMovieMagicOKC. All right. Laurent, thanks so much for joining us today. Zachary Burns, where can people find you online? Uh... They can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Left Eye Burns. All right. Wonderful. Lots of uh, left eyes burning over there. Check them out. <laughs> Zachary Burns, thanks so much for joining us today. And of thank course. you for being our uh, fresh set of eyes. On, on yes. the end, this was great because it gave me, it forced me to finally sit down and watch these movies. And they're like, so good, you guys. So thank you for making me do this. Oh, and fantastic. thank you for a special shout out to Laron, who, when I told uh, several months ago that when he was talking about how excited he was for the new screen movie. And I mentioned just as a fun fact about myself that I hadn't seen any of them. He just looked at me and was like, really? And then the next We're gonna time, change that. yeah. And then the next time I saw him, he handed me, uh, all four movies on DVD. So true friend status, <laughs> yeah. true friend status. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, Brock Lay, where can people keep up with you and your work online? Uh, they can follow me on Instagram at Brockness underscore monster. Awesome. Brock, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Uh, and again, just to echo Zach, Laurent, thanks so much for your enthusiasm for this series, for bringing Zach to the table. All credit goes to you. I, had I who have no, also known Zach for several years, had no clue that he hadn't seen any <laughs> of the movies until you told me. Well-kept secret. <laughs> I guarded it close to the chest. Uh, <laughs> so thanks so much for saying, hey, what if we did a retrospective episode? I think it was a great idea, and this has been a fun conversation. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this extended episode. Again, don't miss our full in-depth review of Scream 5. Catch you again next time. <laughs>